I invite you to turn to Hebrews 7 this morning. Uh, I have to admit, uh, I, I know that there is a movement out there to lock the clock. All right, have you heard about that on social media? Lock the clock, uh, trying to make sure we never do this sort of thing again, uh, changing it up. There, there is a small part of me, though, that kind of likes this a little. Um, I'm not a morning person, but the reason I like this is because as a shepherd, I learn so much about the sheep uh, on Sundays like this. I mean, you would be amazed by what you can see from up here. Uh, so so uh, I, there, there's a part of me that just enjoys this every year. Uh, you know, uh, just a few moments ago when I first came up here, I was just shocked by how few people were in here. Uh, but it's amazing how it's filled up uh, as we've gone along. Uh, so anyway, I, I look forward to um, working through this text with you, and I trust that you'll stay awake and stay alert as we, as we go through this. Last week, I gave you a quick way to remember the content of Hebrews 7 through 10. I uh, use the acrostic PCS. Okay, do you think that is, is that this? Because I can preach from here. Okay, let's try that. All right, so uh, we, we used the acrostic last week, PCS. Remember that? I said that um, if you remember this acrostic, it can help you with these chapters. Chapter 7 is primarily about the, the P, priests. Chapter 8, covenants. Chapter 9, sacrifices. So there's a lot about priests, covenants, and sacrifices in this section. So as, as we're in chapter 7 this morning, we're talking about priests. Last week, we started through this section uh, on old and new priests, and we looked primarily at old priests. Do you remember what we said about the old priests? You can look in your Bible at the first 19 verses of this chapter and perhaps be reminded of some of that. These old priests couldn't bring things to completion. That is, they were always offering sacrifices day after day, offering sacrifices uh, for the sins of the people. They couldn't bring things to completion. We also learned that they weren't always there for you. Do you remember this? They weren't always there for you. As a new priest would come, you'd have to get used to him and his ministry and the the temple, they weren't always there for you. And then finally, we learned last week that they couldn't get you to God. We ended with this. If you wanted to get into the Holy of Holies, if you were a sincere worshiper and you wanted to get into the Holy of Holies to see the presence of God, to experience him in that place, the high priest would have to say, there's no way we can get you in there. You can't go in there. This is just for us and once a year. Today, however, we're going to look at the one who finished the job. Now, since we don't deal with priests every day, I want to I use a contemporary illustration to help you learn what is going on in this text and why it might be important for you. So let's imagine for a moment that you had committed a serious crime or were accused of committing a serious crime and that you were in jail. You need at that time someone to represent you. So the Commonwealth of Virginia provides for you a legal counsel. 
What you don't realize, however, is that your legal counsel in this imagined scenario is totally corrupt. He has the wrong kind of training. Suggests he's something like an estate lawyer, and this is a criminal case. He has no experience as well in criminal cases, and to make matters worse, your corrupt lawyer is lazy and completely uninterested in the details of your case. Now, unfortunately, you don't know any of this. You think he's got it under control. But then you have a friend who knows better. She has experience working with this law court. She knows this crooked lawyer for one time he represented her or someone she cares about. She not only knows the crooked lawyer, she also knows of a better lawyer. One whose specialty is in the exact area that you need. One who has experience in in arguing cases like this. Further, this better lawyer has a perfect record in court. And he is relentless. That is, he is tenacious in his abilities to defend others. And to top all of the other matters off, this better lawyer is also aware of evidence that will completely exonerate you. So your friend pleads with you. She says, drop the crooked lawyer. He can't help you. Go with the better lawyer. He is sure to get you out of this and to get the job done. Men and women, that's what the author of Hebrews is doing with his original readers regarding priests. The old priest can't help you, he says. Don't trust them. Go with the new great high priest, Jesus. He's a perfect match for what you need. He's the only one who can help you. And so in this text, Hebrews 7, verses 20 through 28, this author gives us three qualities about the priesthood of Jesus, which make him much better than these old priests of the old covenant. I want to look with you first at the first quality in verses 20 through 22. Let's read these verses. I'll read them out loud. It says, And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, but this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. So first argument is this. First we see the priesthood of Jesus is is better because it has a better basis. God validated Jesus' priesthood with an oath. Now, since the Old Covenant priests were replaced, one of the original hearers of this line of thinking about Jesus and his priesthood might object and say, well, if God replaced the Old Covenant priest, what would prevent him from eventually replacing Jesus too. Uh, Let me use an illustration to kind of help us here. Do you remember when you were a child 
In many houses, mothers pass down clothes from one child to another. These clothes have the affectionate title, hand-me-downs, right, hand-me-downs. Now, if you were the middle child in your family, you were affected both ways by this practice, okay? So you might remember the, the good day when your mother comes into your room and she brings fistfuls of new clothes, well, new used clothing, slightly used clothing for you. She's passing them down to you. It's a, it's a good day, maybe not a great day. It's a good day. But then one day she comes into your closet and takes your things away from you and gives them to your younger sibling. It was great when you received the clothes, but nothing would stop your mother from taking your clothes and passing them down to someone else. So men and women, what would prevent God from removing Christ if he had removed the old covenant priest? Is he some sort of middle type of priest who also will one day be replaced? Well, the answer to that is found in these verses. The answer from the author of Hebrews is that God took an oath about this priest. Now, the word oath is a unique word. It's only used four times in the entire New Testament. It's used in these verses. In verse 20, it's used twice. In verse 21, it's used. And in verse 28, this word is a word that uh, is a bit more solemn than some of the other words. And it is a word that emphasizes the fact of oath-taking. So in, in, in a sense here, he's, he's really trying to get our picture to imagine God taking an oath, that moment where God takes an oath. But, but when did God take an oath concerning the priesthood of Jesus? And the answer to that is found in the citation that's right here in your Bible. The author of Hebrews cites a passage that he cited over and over and over again. It's Psalm 110 and verse 4. So the answer to when did God take an oath to establish the basis of Jesus' priesthood is about a thousand years before Jesus was ever born. About a thousand years before Jesus was ever born in the writings of David. In his day, God said that David's future Lord would be a priest forever. See that? You are a priest forever. That's God taking an oath to establish the basis of Jesus' high priesthood. The old priests, they were not inaugurated on the basis of an oath. In his sermon on this text, uh, John MacArthur uh, says that God never intended for the Levitical priest to be perfect or permanent. And so he did not establish their priesthood or covenant with an oath. But we can be confident in Christ's priesthood and in the covenant that he brings because God validated him with an oath. That is the basis of Christ's priesthood. And this oath in verse 22 we learn, this oath makes Jesus the surety or the guarantor of a better covenant. Where guarantor is, is one that we don't use very much today. The original word, though, 
uh, when affixing this title uh, could be used in a few different ways in first century literature. At times it was used in financial transactions of someone who was uh, acting as a guarantee for a loan. A, we might use the word cosigner or something uh, like that. Uh, you're guaranteeing as a cosigner that someone is going to repay the loan, whether it's the first individual or you if they default on the loan. But uh, this word was also used in legal context, and I think that that's the proper idea here. Uh, this is similar to how we might think of someone posting bond to get someone else out of jail. So if the person skips out in our setting of town, then you lose all the money. What was common in ancient days, however, was not posting money, but posting another person to take the place of someone in jail. That person would wait in jail as a guarantee, a guarantor, that the other would not flee away. And that is what Jesus is here. Because God took an oath to establish his priesthood, Jesus is a guarantee of a better covenant. The law covenant had no oath connected with it. Moses wasn't given an oath, but Christ's priesthood rests on an oath made by God in Psalm 110. That's the first quality of his priesthood. His priesthood is better because it has a better basis. But then we move to the next one in verses 23 through 25. So another quality of Christ's priesthood that makes it better is its permanency. Look in verse 23 with me. It says, The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death by continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. In these verses, the author is making the point that the priesthood of Jesus lasts longer than the old priest and that it comes with unending benefits. So the way he begins here is he begins by saying the former priests were many in number. One uh, first century writer, author, is a Jewish person uh, from, uh, from that, that time period. He, he did the math and he said that there were exactly 83 different high priests that existed from Aaron down to the last high priest uh, before the destruction of Jerusalem. But Christ here is not one of many. It's not one of 83. Christ has an unchangeable priesthood. His priesthood is permanent because he will never die again. Now, consequently, because of the permanence of his priesthood, the text says he is able to save to the uttermost those who will draw near to God through him. I just want to take a little bit of time. I know it's early for us today, but I want to take a little bit of time and talk about what does this text mean when it says save to the uttermost. Okay, and you might take some notes on this. These words, to the uttermost, 
might speak of either the degree or the duration of our salvation. It might be that Christ is able to save those who trust in him completely. This would then speak of the fact that Jesus has done everything necessary, that everything we need to save us wholly or thoroughly. Okay, so it might be degree of our salvation. It's full, okay, fully covered. So he's able to save to the uttermost. He's able to do it completely. Or this could mean that for those who draw near to God through Jesus, he is able to save them forever. Okay, could speak of time. So here it helps to think of an horizon, okay. Uh, we need to be saved from now until as far as you can see on the horizon and even farther, forever and ever. So this save to the uttermost might speak of him saving us forever or there's another possibility. I promise this is the last one. The other possibility is it could be both of them and I think that's more likely. That what he is saying is to be saved to the uttermost means being saved uh, in degree and time. Jesus saves us then thoroughly, completely, forever and ever. Might be best then to translate this something like the New English Bible translates it absolutely. He's able to save us absolutely the old commentator Robert Gramacki said this well he said the goal of Christ's salvation is total perfection of the child of God absolute perfection but how does Christ do that in this text how is he able to save us to the uttermost or absolutely now if you were to answer that question you, from other texts you might think that well the way he does that according to the author of Hebrews and other places is through his one-time sacrifice it's his one-time offering. It's the cross. That's how he did it. And that would be a right answer in other texts. But notice his answer here in this text. The, the way Jesus is able to save us to the uttermost in this text is uh, through his continual intercession for us. That is, Jesus brings about our absolute salvation in degree and time through his continual mediation to God on our behalf. I think one of the things that's helpful for me this week was when I kept in mind that there is a being who is given an occasional audience before God. His name is Satan. And he is the great accuser, right? He's the great accuser of the brethren. And so he can occasionally bring our sins up to God. But there is another being who is always living to mediate on your behalf. I describe him this way. He is your relentless defender. With, by the way, a perfect defense and sacrifice. 
Men and women, there is one who is always there to intercede for those who draw near to God through him. It's only those. So if you're here today and you have, you're not drawing near to God on the basis of Jesus Christ, it's not for you. But if you've accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, there is one who is always there in the presence of God interceding for you. You see, we are utterly in need of salvation and Christ makes it happen because his priesthood is permanent, it is lasting, and that is good because we keep on sinning. As he goes before God, I think he continually pleads the, the, the value of his one-time sacrifice, his blood for all of our sins. So we're learning about the priesthood of Jesus and why it's better. The author of Hebrews is appealing to these Jewish readers who are thinking about going back to the old covenant. He says, don't go back to the old priests. They can't help you. I'm offering you a new priest. He serves on the basis, uh, on a better basis. And uh, his life and ministry lasts longer and has unending benefits. But there's one last quality I want to see. Verses 26 through 28 with you, and we'll read this together as well. Look at verse 26. For it was indeed fitting. Think about those words. It was fitting, it was appropriate, that we should have such a high priest. Holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens, he has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily for first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. Since he did once for all, or since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath the word that comes from the oath of God, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. In these verses, we learn the third quality that he exalts, and I call it the, the appropriateness or the fitting nature of Christ's priesthood. In other words, what he's telling them and us is that Jesus, you know, considering everything I know about who you are, and your sinful nature, and the fact that you need saved to the uttermost, there's only one priest who is fitting. There's only one. There's one who is exactly what you need. We saw before in this text that we needed uttermost saving. Here the author matches that language by portraying the utter sinlessness of Christ. More specifically, in this very powerful text, what the author does is he, he, he gives us six descriptions. Six descriptions of Christ's uh, moral matchless qualifications that separate him from every other high priest they might want to find. These six descriptions, four adjectives and two participles then describes this more about our Savior. First, we learn uh, that he is holy. He is holy. This word means devout, pleasing to God, holy. 
This word roots us firmly in Old Testament revelation. When I see this word, I often think of Isaiah in the presence of God. Remember the vision that Isaiah gets in the presence of God in Isaiah chapter 6, that powerful passage. In that powerful passage, Isaiah has the cherubim proclaiming, I think, the fundamental character of God. They say it three times, right? Holy, holy, holy. In this text, what the author of Hebrews does is he starts with this fundamental quality of God himself. He's holy. He's completely set apart from sin. And he says that it's the fundamental quality of this new high priest, Jesus, as well. This has to do with his integrity. He's completely apart from sin. And and then he goes on to the second description. He says he's also innocent. That's the translation of the ESV here for the second word. He's innocent. This has to do with his actions. This high priest is guileless. He's completely untouched by evil. You could literally translate it without any evil or badness. That's his, this high priest. He is holy. He's innocent. Three, he is unstained. Christ was completely pure and undefiled as well. The word unstained is used often in the Old Testament as well of things that were not polluted in any way. Arkent Hughes reminds us uh, here how Christ was able to fill this throughout his earthly life. He says Christ was able to walk through the muck and the mire of this world for 33 years and yet he was never stained by sin. There's not one blemish that you could find in this high priest. But he continues, fourth, he was also separated from sinners. And while I think this is true of his earthly life, he was separate from sinners. I think it's better here a description of the separation he now has in heaven where he is completely set apart or separated from sinful beings. Then the text says, fifth, he is exalted. This word means he is uplifted or he is made high. And God did a really good job of exalting this high priest because he exalts him to the position where he is above the heavens. Okay, so it's a powerful description. It's not just that he's exalted in the heavens. He's above the heavens. The author of Hebrews has already told us this in Hebrews chapter 1 about Jesus after his resurrection and ascension. He went into the heavenly throne room of God. He sits enthroned. And you remember how Hebrews 1 described it. He sits enthroned in the majesty. In the majesty at the right hand of God. Until God makes all of his enemies a footstool for his feet. But then finally in verses 27 and 28 we learn that he also did not have to offer sacrifices for his own sins. The priest was to be always conscious of his own sinfulness, especially on the Day of Atonement. The old priests were appointed in weakness, the text says, but not this one, not Jesus. It was not necessary that Christ would offer a sacrifice for himself because the text says that because he has been made complete forever. I've actually come across this sort of description of Jesus before in the book of Hebrews. He's been made mature or complete. And when used of Jesus, I think it's describing 
the whole process of Christ's life, death, resurrection, and ascension that, and here's some qualified him for continual ministry in the presence of God. Now, it's interesting to me that the word made perfect, made complete, is used by the author of Hebrews not just to describe Jesus, though. It's also used of us, the need for human beings to be made complete. Now, we're different than Jesus, though. It's worse for us. He was sinless, separated from sinners. What he went through prepared him for his priestly ministry, but for us to be made complete, our sin had to be overcome. We are utterly sinful in need of uttermost salvation, and he was utterly sinless. So consequently, Jesus, then, is the only fitting sacrifice for sins. Albert Moeller said it this way. He said, the specific kind of priest Christ is, is the kind of priest that we need. His priesthood is the only answer for our need. Only priest. Only answer. Perhaps you've had it to choose between two good things before and you struggled to know exactly what to do only to find out later that one of your choices never really was a good choice. The original professing, professing Jewish believers here are confronted with such a choice and they are learning that old priests, the old priests were not everything that they thought they were. The old priests couldn't get the job done. They weren't always there for you. And they could not get you to God. The new priest, however, he is validated. He is permanent. He is pure and complete. He is exactly what they needed. And men and women, he is not only exactly what they needed, he is exactly what we need as well. If you come to God, if you draw near to God through Jesus, he will be your relentless defender. And he has the only sufficient basis for the covering of sin. He is holy, innocent, unstained as a perfect sacrifice. See, the truth is, we have all messed up things royally. And we need someone really powerful who can save us absolutely. And that is only found in Jesus Christ. The nature of our serious crimes against God demand 
a relentless defense and a sinless substitutionary sacrifice on our behalf. Let's pray together. As we close, I hope you know this relentless defender of your soul. The one who has the perfect substitutionary sacrifice. Men and women, as we close, let me, I, know, I know it's early for us, but let me just say, this is real. Okay? This is really happening today for those who draw near to God through him. You have a divine interceder who is answering the accusation of Satan, who has appeased the wrath of God completely for your sin. And so I ask you today, what are you counting on for forgiveness? If you're here today and you're trying to draw near to God in any other way, all other ways are corrupt. They're fake. They won't get you there. You cannot get there on the basis of your own activity or work. It's only through Christ. So if you're here today and you're counting on anything else for your forgiveness, won't you turn to Christ alone, the high priest? Won't you learn from these ancient words of an author to original readers that, that God would be using today in your heart to show you that there's only one way to draw near to God? It's through him. close in prayer as well I ask those of you who do believe in Christ I ask you what is your neighbor counting on your neighbor next door across the street the man or woman at the end of the cul-de-sac the man or woman on the second floor of your apartment what are they counting on and won't you tell them won't you tell them every other basis won't get it done? Won't get it done? Won't you be like this friend I use in the illustration who, who goes to the person in jail and says, don't trust the crooked lawyers. They're not interested in you. They can't get it done. Won't you say to them, there's only one who really cares. There's only one whose sacrifice can cover your sin. And men and women, as we read through this text, we, our hearts should be stirred by our blessed Savior, who not only died for us, he died so that men and women, our neighbors, could turn to him for full forgiveness of sins. We're so thankful that he can save to the uttermost anyone, anyone who turns to him. Let's pray together. Father, Go before you now. I hope and pray that each one of us recognizes the serious natures of our crimes against you. It is God's grace, not only, that one day 
we wouldn't go to hell, but that we're not in hell right now. That is your grace. May we see that the serious crimes we've committed against you and understand, Lord, that that demands a relentless defender and a sinless substitutionary sacrifice. And as we started this whole service, Father, for those of us who know Christ, may that bring us joy. Might we be glad and might we shout for joy to the one who makes it possible. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.